Man, y'all welcome. Please take a seat. So excited, everybody joining us online. I am excited to be back with you. If you're in the back and you're still looking for some seats here in person, there's a section down here right up front. There's a section right up here right up front. I know up front it's terrifying, but it's okay. I won't spit on you. There's a reason you're that far back. If you're watching online, I hope you're comfortable on a couch or wherever you might be. So excited to be with you guys. I'm John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs. If you've been with us the past few weeks, and here's what you know, we've been working our way through Matthew, and then last week we took a break and we addressed the election. What I want to do today is I want to start out by reading the passage we're going to be in today. If you've grown up in church, you're familiar with your Bible, it's a fairly familiar passage. It's the temptation of Jesus by Satan. If you have a Bible and you want to turn with me, turn to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to start our time by reading verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. Then, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, your Bible, and may say desolate place or barren place. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That word hunger, you could literally say he was starving. The tempter came to him and said, temptation number one, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written. Jesus starts quoting from the book of Deuteronomy right here. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, so we're moving on in the passage, temptation number two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So now they've gone to Jerusalem and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, and this is where Satan starts accurately, but he's going to twist it, quoting scripture. He's going to quote from Psalm 91. Satan says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jump, Jesus, jump. Why? The angels will catch you. Jesus said to him, again it is written, Jesus, he's going back to the book of Deuteronomy. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. Again, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then The devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There's a lot of things that we're going to talk about in this passage. At one point, I just want to draw it at the top, though. Satan is tempting, beckoning, appealing, pulling on the heartstrings of Jesus the same way he pulls on your heartstrings and he pulls on mine. But in the midst of Satan's temptations of Jesus, there's this moment where Jesus is going, he's going, he's going. You get to a third round, and then Jesus says, hey, Satan, be gone. Satan obeys the voice of Christ. Here's the reason I start with this, guys. One, I just love where we are in this passage. Again, this is what's beautiful about your Bible, right? If you've been tracking with us, two weeks ago, we were building this anthem in the reality of John the Baptist, which that passage is going to inform this one, where we talked about repentance. How we think about repentance, it's a harsh word, but biblically, it is a good word for you and for me. Last week, we talked about the election. We got stuck in that. I'm sure all of you guys, it's been a really easy week. No one has checked channel news far more often than they ever have before. Your anxiety and blood pressure rate hasn't gone up and down, whether your candidate won or whether your candidate lost. Sure, that wasn't your week. And then this week, God loves us so much. He's like, let's talk about Satan beautiful part about working through your Bible. See, you and I, we have a tendency to kind of focus on the topics we like or to focus on the aspects of our Bible that maybe even to say it this way, we like how it makes us feel. We, 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 we appreciate these ones where there's stories of just victory and moments. But right here, do you see who led Jesus to the wilderness? The Spirit. There's a reality of temptation. Today, as we continue through our series of Matthew, today we are going to look at the temptations of Jesus, and we are going to talk about how you and I can grow in, continue being at overcoming temptation.
temptation. It's a light topic. It's a soft topic. Fairly lighthearted. Overcoming temptation. See, see, you and I, we aren't Jesus, but here's what I can assure you, and Jesus is going to show us as we work through these tactics. Every person walking the face of the planet, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, you face temptation. Temptation is this moment, according to the book of James, chapter 1. You don't have to turn here. I'll read it for you. It says this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You and I have desires. Many of them have been given by God, and they're good. But we have this tendency in our brokenness to meet godly desires in ungodly ways. Simplest examples. This is why, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you wrestle with this. You just may call it a different thing. A desire for food can give way to gluttony. I'm not just going to go to Cain's and get one Caniac. I'm going to go to Cain's and get two Caniacs. Nobody else knows the Caniac? All right. I'm not only going to have a desire for companionship, but when I feel the absence of companionship, I'm going to get on an app, I'm going to swipe right, I'm going to justify, I'm just going to hang out, and I'm adult, and I'm mature enough to handle this, and then I'm going to go meet somebody, and I'll be sure to meet it in a way that starts over drinks. Why? I'll just calm my nerves and then see where it goes. You see, you can have a right desire to lead And that desire can be twisted for control, domineering. We could take these things and twist them, but the root of every temptation is a desire. And when that desire goes astray, destruction always comes. The second part about this that Christians, we recognize is true, even though, by the way, as a Western culture, we do all we can to avoid the supernatural, all we can to avoid the metaphysical. Satan is real. Does that mean there's like a a guy dressed in all red with horns and a pitchfork? No, I think that's a caricature. But Satan, biblically, is also described as the tempter, the accuser, the adversary, the serpent, the great dragon. Biblically, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. One of the things that's true, even if you don't, right, recognize the existence of the supernatural, but if you're a Christian, you should you can look at the reality of our world. Destruction, genocide, death rates, war. There is an adversary, I would say. In the biblical worldview, that adversary, his name is Satan. He is not a co-powerful one with God. They are not equals. This is not yin and yang, light and dark. Jesus speaks, Satan obeys. God is always more powerful. But in the reality of a fallen world, is there one who his hope is to dismantle your faithfulness? Wreck your marriage? Creating you, and this is one of the things I think Christians wrestle with the most, I'm just going to call it a defeated spirituality. Where you sit in a sense of, I won't change. This situation won't change. I won't find joy. I won't really ever be able to get to know God. I'll never stop this sin. I'll never be not led by worry or fear or greed or lust. So I'm going to manage it best I can. I'm going to try to hide it, but really there's no hope. And it's a defeated spirituality. Or, or, if you don't believe, he does his best to blind you in unbelief. So you and I, here's what I hope you heard. You face temptation all the time, all the time. And your temptation, right, it may feel like no one wrestles the way you wrestle or no one gets it the way you get it, but here's what's true biblically. Nothing has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Do you know what that means? My problems may show up and manifest or or demonstrate themselves in a different symptom than yours, but we have the same root problems. That's another reason why Christians and self-righteous condemnation of others is completely unbiblical. 
But how do we overcome? How do you find a sense of like hope and victory in prevailing? Because here's the reality of my life. I have totally existed in a sense of enslavement to sin, even though I've known the freedom of Christ. And then I've existed by the grace of God in a real sense of freedom, not perfection, but like winning because he's a winner. How do we overcome? That's what we're going to talk about today. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, as we, as we look at overcoming temptation. But in order to do that, we're going to talk about, and we're going to try to understand where temptation starts. Again, what I'm going to put before you is the tactics of temptation. They may show up in new ways. Like Jesus was not worried about swiping right, but did he face loneliness? Yes. Did people in the first century, did Jews right? They, they didn't have to go and get on a computer and then find themselves in a broken form of images in pornography that all of a sudden they realize and wake up, but they're too terrified to tell anybody. But they absolutely wrestled with guilt, and shame, and lust. The insecurity to open up about the state of marriage, you think that's new? Crippling divorce rate even inside the church, you think that's new? may show up in new ways, but is an ancient path. There's a book that really informed, honestly, I really need to give much of the credit for the content that I'll deliver from this book. It's a book by Dr. Russell Moore. It's called Tempted and Tried. He has a line in there that I don't think I'll ever forget. He has this, it's this premise of every one of my sins, your sins, believer in Jesus or not, it's heavy. It's a part of a blood-stained path that goes all the way back to the garden. How do we overcome? We're going to look at where temptation starts. We're going to see the three ways. Temptation number one, self-gratification. Temptation number two, self-protection. Temptation number three, self-exaltation. And then by the grace of God, we're going to try to sever them at the root. Because one of the things we care a ton about here at the Springs is not just addressing sin at the level of a weed but at the root. Anyone here ever have weeds in their yard? Or you can be like mine who just gave up on it and it's basically like a dead dirt patch. That's a way to attach it. Here's what's true. If you have weeds in a garden or a path or a yard, you can mow them. You can totally mow them. Three days later though, here's what there's a tendency to. That weed's gonna go faster than the grass. So that weed's gonna pick back up. And you're gonna have to mow it again. It's gonna pick back up, you're gonna have to mow it again. It's gonna pick back up, you're gonna have to mow it again. What do you have to do? You pull the weed from the root. Christians have developed a sense of morality that they pat themselves on the back for mowing over weeds. Jesus Christ wants to come in your life and in my life in result of the cross and dismantle it at the root. That's why this day as you talk about temptation, it's of major hope. You can change. He so loves you. This doesn't have to mark you. And even if you sit there and you think, well, I don't really have a problem with sin, that means you are deeply self-righteous and likely being enveloped by sin and you don't even know it. He's crazy about you. He'll help you. He wants to go to the root. But church, and if you're not a Christian, you don't have to do this part, right? You don't have to do this. But if you're a Christian, Go to the root. We're going to see how Christ shows that today. Let's jump back into the passage. Um, I'm going to start by reading 1 through 5. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. A little bit of setup for this. The wilderness for the Jewish people, that's who Matthew was written to. It, it represents a symbolic place of judgment and trial. The Israelites, they were led into the wilderness in response and judgment from their failure and sin to enter into the promised land the first time. If you don't know that, that's okay. And then they wandered the wilderness, not for 40 days in fasting, but for 40 years. Israel failed in the wilderness as they were following God. Jesus Christ prevails. He succeeds. He honors God in the wilderness as he was led by God. You're going to see this theme, though, 
He's in the wilderness and he's been fasting. Part of that, it's not just that Jesus went and he got like a spiritual uh, pummeling. He's gone and he spent 40 days with a heart of focusing on the Father. Prayer, I imagine he studied the book of Deuteronomy. Reflecting, resting, connecting. Anybody here ever watch like the Rocky movies? If not, we have a recovery ministry on Monday nights. We'd love to introduce you to that. Here's the best, it's the same movie over and over, and I love them all, even the new ones with Creed. There's always the major fight at the end, but what happens, like, and this may not be you, but it happens to me. Like, there's the prep work scene where, for example, my favorite one is when Rocky, like, goes off into Russia, and he's, like, carrying logs and running through snow. There's, like, this, like, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. He's, like, running upstairs, like, Adrian. Not at that part, right? But he does all of that. There's this building part to a fight. Satan is not an equal with Jesus in the way they go to fight, but there's a truth. Jesus goes away for time with the Father. He's building in preparation for the public ministry that's to begin. But then Satan comes. He wants to cut the legs out from under it. Let's pick it up in verse 3, and we'll go through verse 5. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he being Jesus answered him, it is written, here he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As you and I talk about how do we overcome temptation, the first thing is we try to dissect and understand where it starts, where it's at a root. The first temptation that's happening before Jesus is this, self-gratification. Self-gratification. Let me show you that. Satan's going to begin by attacking Jesus at the level of his identity, who he is to God, what he means to God. Is God his good father? Does God really love him? Will God really provide for him? Why would God, if God is good, allow his boy to be starving? See, we we tend to picture Jesus right now in this moment is just sitting there and hanging out. No, no, no wilderness, 40 days, 40 nights. Like, you know how when people have been outside, like lips chapped, emaciated, blood losing. If he does not eat, he'll die. Would a good father do that? There's no way the spirit of God would lead to that. Hey, Jesus, if he won't provide for you, you should provide for yourself but he starts by attacking the identity. What did Jesus just have affirmed in Matthew chapter three? He just had affirmed, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Right at the gate, Satan attacks that. You also see in this, Satan, he's pulling out, he's teasing this biblical theme of, of appetite. He's trying to take Jesus' desires, and just like you and me, what can happen? He's trying to take understandable, fair, human desires, God-given, and meet them in ungodly, unholy ways. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's starving. Satan, he's saying, surely God would want you to eat, man. Like my daughter, anytime she asks for food, right? Maybe I'm supposed to be on a better feeding schedule or something, so you can like parent judge me in a minute. But anytime she asks for food, you know what I do? I just get her food. It's really complicated. She wants a snack. She says, Daddy, I'm hungry. You know what I do? I say, well, sweetie, here's a snack. Why? I'm a good father. What about God? You see, right here, Satan is tempting Jesus to shortcut God's path, to shortcut God's way, and provide for himself. Hey, God's not going to gratify or satisfy that desire. He'll understand, man. You're starving. You gratify it. You satisfy it. This happens. These are ancient temptations. In the garden, Satan, he tells Eve to eat of the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. There's literally a component of eating, meeting an appetite. You may know in your Old Testament, Esau, he exchanges the covenant promise of God for red stew, an appetite. Appetites change, though. King David, we talked about this a few months ago, he walks up onto a rooftop, and he has an appetite of lust where he looks over a balcony, and he sees a woman that is not his wife, and he takes her. 
The nation of Israel, they had an appetite that was unsatiable. How can I find security and a sense of commitment? I want to find it outside of God. How do I take God and? There's a biblical truth that when you and I give way to sin, we tend to do it because we want to gratify a desire. If you're in a moment where you feel out of control, you'll elevate in a sense of anger to bring it back under your control. You are feeding an appetite. In a moment of temptation, or let's just say of lust, you give way and you go to broken images in marriage, out of marriage. You are feeding an appetite. In that moment, you're saying, God, I don't know if you'll satisfy. I'm going to provide for me. Self-gratification. See, Satan tempts Jesus to gratify his own desires, and at the root of that is a distrust of God as Father. Provider, protector, even when you don't understand, I'll take care of you. It can show up in questions like this. It may be different. You and I, even though for Jesus, turning stones to bread is easy. It's super easy. Like first miracle, he's going to go water to wine. He's going to go and he's going to make loaves and bread. He's going to come back from the dead. It's not an issue of capability. It's an issue of trust. This is why after the moment of you and I give way to sin, again, let's say it's the anxiety and the fear that leads to then the response of escalate and shouting others down. If you have the Spirit of God in you, there's a reason why after that. You have conviction, and you feel worse than you did at the start because it won't satisfy the appetite. The appetite will just grow. You know how you change appetites? You starve them, and you change what you feast on. You starve them, you change what you feast on. But sin, it does this. That's what we're seeing throughout this. I heard a story, a pastor once, he talked about a famous Indian journalist. He's since passed. This journalist was not a believer in Jesus, but he became one. Part of the story of how he became one, he was in India. He, he basically had this life that went in the opposite way of even if you're not a believer in Jesus, of what you might call Christian morality. He went down to the river to bathe. On the other side of the river, he saw a woman naked and bathing. She'd gone down into the water. He wanted her. He swam across the river. She didn't notice he was coming until he got quite close. He gets up close to her, and the way he relates the story, as soon as the woman saw him, she comes in fear, and she runs up onto the riverbank, and she begins to cover her exposed body. But as she goes to cover her exposed body, and as he'd gotten closer, he realizes something. She's missing fingers. Part of her hand had begun to go away. Her nose had decayed, and there are scabs and marks on her body of dying flesh. She had leprosy. He got up close, he realizes that. And the way he describes the story is there were two realizations that came to him. The first was, she is ugly. The second was when God began to work on his heart. She is not the ugliest thing in this moment, it is me. See, sin has this reality, and this is meant of no disrespect to a leper. But when you get up close to it, here's what's always true every time, it bats a thousand, you know this. It's full of decay. It will leave you less. This is true of drugs, man. You try to get high, you will always be left low, and then lower, and then lower. You want to find life in a boyfriend? You can get high, and they're going to be left low and lower. You can give way on boundaries. You can get high, and then you'll be left low and lower. It creates an insatiable appetite. Jesus will not succumb to that. He trusts the Father, but exposes this brokenness in your heart and mine, and that's what ten, uh, Satan's pulling on. So how do you overcome this temptation of self-gratification? What are you and I to do? If the questions are, does God like really love me? If he did, I wouldn't be hungry, I'd be happy, I wouldn't be lonely, I, I wouldn't be without a biological child or an adopted child, I wouldn't be without a husband by this age, I would be at this point in my career, I would have this much in the bank, I would get that college scholarship, I would be this good in school. Does he really love me? Is he really for me? He would never keep from me what I want. He would never keep from me what I need. The first temptation in distrust of God and fatherhood is self-gratification. The first truth that you and I need to know reaches back into Matthew 3, and it's this. He loves you. He loves you. 
See, there's this reality where God Almighty pronounced over Jesus Christ as Jesus came out of the water, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. If you are here and you're a follower of Christ, you sever the root of self-gratification by growing in an honest death grip of the spiritual reality he actually loves you. That because Christ died for you, when God looks at you, he sees through Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's crazy about Jesus. One of the ways many of you need to sever the root of your habitual recurring sin is yes, you can memorize a passage like I will set no unwholesome thing before my eyes. That's great. Some of you, you need to sever the root of the recurring sense of self that just leads to despair as you reflect on your life and your life alone. You need to step outside of that and you sever the root by knowing he loves you. The same word for wilderness, if you remember, is broad places. Psalm 18, it says this. He brought me out into the wilderness, desolate place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He loves you. Will there be times where you will be hungry and you likely won't understand? Yes, Jesus promises it. It is all over your Bible. The moment the hunger goes away is the moment you leave this world or he returns from heaven. But he loves you. Every time I try to self-gratify, I shortcut that love. Temptation number one, self-gratification. We want to overcome sin. Let's jump back in. Let's look at verses five and seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city, so we are in Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, did they like teleport? Is it a vision? Like is Satan like just literally standing beside him? Is it some visible thing? Your Bible, it doesn't tell you that. I don't know. But right here, there's the moment where they are on the temple, would have been 300 feet high. They've gone to the pinnacle, the highest place. And Satan's saying, jump, Jesus, jump. Said to him, if you are the son of God, again, attacks the identity. Throw yourself down, for it is written. Satan knows his Bible better than you and me. And he twists it. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, again going back to Deuteronomy to show how he is victorious. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put your Lord your God to the test. The second point as we talk about overcoming temptation, temptation number two, it is an ancient path with new forms. The temptation is self-protection. Self-protection. Let me show you, that one might be confusing just at face value. Satan tempts Jesus to test God because he wants Jesus to see, wants God to prove if he'll really help him, if he'll really protect him. You see, Satan wants Jesus to force God's hand to prove that he'll really protect him. He wants to test the goodness and the kindness of his father and if his father's way is actually better. The temptation here it's this idea of a proven sense of security. Let me explain. You see, Jesus, he, he would jump, and he's in the middle of downtown Jerusalem. This was the epicenter of Judaism. People would have seen, it would have even given a sense of vindication to his coming claims of, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. But not only, it would have been a physical demonstration for them and for Jesus that when I jump, he'll catch me. You see, Jesus, he's launching into a life of public ministry, a life that's going to be marked by betrayal, people deceiving, people seeking to have him killed, that it will end in a cross. Jesus, in this moment, he's beginning this journey. He has this choice before him. You sure he'll take care of you? What if we just test it and make sure? Jesus is walking by faith. This would have been walking by a greater sense of assurance to Jesus. It is a tempting distrust of the protection of God. I once had a buddy of mine. I was growing up. I was like 13. We went on this retreat down to Florida through the uh, church we were part of. And I don't remember what happened. Nothing special happened for me. But we go into this room. They like turn off all the lights and like everybody gets a candle, right? Okay, maybe, you, maybe you've used this tactic. They all get a candle and we're sitting there. And my candle's over here. His candle's over there. At the end of this time, I go through it. I don't even remember what happened. I leave, but I can remember him coming up to me. He said, John, John, the most amazing thing happened. The most amazing thing happened. 
I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, man, I've been wrestling with my faith. It's been a little hard for me. I asked God, hey, God, if you're real, put the candle out. There was no HVAC. John, no one had opened a door. There was no wind. God, put the candle out. The way he describes it, and I totally believe it. Candle goes out. One of the things that would become true of his faith, and he wouldn't mind me sharing you with this, there'd be a recurring sense of, hey, God, can you just show me? Hey, God, I know it's true, but can you just prove it? Hey, God, can you give me an assurance? That would mark that all the way to the moment where he would bury his first wife. He's my age. And he'd sought those signs. His relationship with God is not strong. You and I, we do the same thing. We want to test God. It's a form of self-protection. We want to make sure we're going the right way, on the right path, you know? Is this exactly what I'm supposed to do? And we create these, almost like in your Old Testament, we could talk about a fleece. We create these different aspects. But really, at the core, we're, we're asking the question, can I trust God? Is God's way actually better? Is God actually with me? Will God actually and really help me? That's what we're asking. Some of us, we have a tendency to take self-protection to a whole new level, where we have a sense where in the past, God did not protect us, therefore, we must protect ourselves. This can be moments of true where people who have suffered tremendous abuse, neglect, assault, enough to make anyone put up boundaries. But over time, what we can have a tendency to do is not just walk in wisdom with faithful boundaries, which your Bible calls you to, but to create an insulated form of self where there's a refusal to ever be wrong, where there's a sense of no one else is right, it has to go my way, and when you feel out of control, you feel under attack. And the walls we once built over time become cages of self-protection. He is protector. Jesus could have forced God's hand in this moment, but he doesn't by faith. He will not test his father. He trusts his father. But in God's protection, where will it lead the son? It will lead him to a cross. It will lead him to a moment in the garden the night before where he's pleading, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. I am not promising you the absence of challenge. I am not taking away from the reality of real pain and hurt that you need healing in response of biblical care. But Christians, we can become experts at self-protection when there is a God in heaven who is the ultimate protector. So what does this look like? What are the questions we ask in temptation number two? Can I trust him? Is his way really better? Is he really with me? Will he really help me? Temptation is to self-protect. What's the truth? You can trust him. Here's what Jesus Christ will promise you. Not only will he protect your salvation throughout all eternity, not only will he come in the midst of all your pain, create a glorious redemption for that in eternity, which often we do not understand, but he will say to you promises like this, which I had to memorize literally the night after a man broke into my apartment where I was sleeping with my wife, stood at the end of my bed, woke up, 4.30, I'm awake, I gotta lead a Bible study at 7. And I just sat there with my wife memorizing this because I couldn't fall back to sleep. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. If not in this life, in the next. But do you trust the Father? Do you see the, the root of the temptation? It's you taking your own hands where the honest claim is, no, 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 you can trust God. The first one self-gratifying, no, no, he loves you. The second one self-protecting, no, 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 you can trust him. It's a better life. Ancient path of brokenness. Modern ways it shows up. Let's read eight through 11. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain. So now they're a place where they could have overlooked the reality of the world, past, present, future kingdoms. Was it a literal mountain? Was it a vision? We don't know. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you 
if you will, fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, Jesus again, he quotes Deuteronomy, You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall, or excuse me, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. The book of Luke also speaks of this account. We're not going to turn there, but the book of Luke adds into the narrative. Right after the devil leaves him, it says, And the devil waits to return for an opportune time. Satan doesn't quit. He just circles back with a different strategy. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This word ministering, it literally could mean serving. They fed him. They restored him. They took care of him. But this third temptation, as you and I are looking at, how do we overcome this overcoming temptation? The third one, it is self-exaltation. Man, man, I'll give you everything you want. You just don't worship the Father. You worship me. Temptation, self-exaltation. Satan here, he finally shows Jesus what he's really after. In defiance of the Father, what are we always doing? We are worshiping him. See, biblically, and this sounds super strange because it's Western culture and we're Americans. So we, we try to avoid all of this. But here's, here's the truth, guys. Narcissism, selfishness, sinful control, you being at the epicenter of your life, idolatry of any kind that elevates you over God is satanic. Like Christians, we, we get terrified if you ever meet a Satanist, which by the way, if you're here and you're a Satanist, we're really glad you're here. It kind of tends to be a little underwhelming, to be honest. You expect a little bit more. There's like a higher sense. No, it's just where they recognize I am my own God. And you're like, okay, yeah, if you don't believe in God, I can get that. But every time I give way where I make myself God, I say, you know what? I want what I want. I'll take a shortcut. That is, and I know it sounds strange, satanic. It doesn't mean that's who I am, but it means that's how I practiced and walked out faithfulness. See, Jesus in this moment, Satan takes him to a mountaintop and he tends him to take a shortcut. You see, what has God promised Jesus? All the kingdoms of the world. Jesus literally looks at that and he, he would have thought, that's my inheritance. That's why I've come. I've come to redeem them, but the future of the kingdom of God, that's mine. And Satan says, you can have it, man. You can have it. And if you have it, you know what else you'll get? You can have it now. Why does that matter? If he gets it now, what does he avoid? The cross. He avoids you. He avoids me. He avoids being torn from the Father. And what would he get? Automatic ruler of everything. Self-exaltation. It's this idea that you and I can have the good and the glory without any of the cost. I think this is why so many times, right, language we've talked about, there's a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is deeply unbiblical. It's the thought that because God loves you, he would never want you to demonstrate things like self-restraint or difficulty, that you would not have suffering as a reality of maturity, that all he would want for you is health, wealth, and happiness. Happiness is not a promise of the Christian journey. I do totally believe that followers of Christ live more joy-filled and happy lives. But happiness being the purpose of your existence, that's a form of materialism. That's a form of humanism. That's the American dream. The Christian one is you are here for faithfulness unto God and he loves you. He's a good father. You can trust him. He'll take care of you. You don't need to exalt yourself by navigating at the office or cutting an ethical shortcut. You don't need to come and make sure you get all you want, when you want, how you want. You don't need to make sure everyone comes and elevates you. You don't need to find someone that you can date and hopefully marry that the reason you want to do it is because when they look at you, you just feel like a king. What he says about you makes you enough. This is my beloved son. I love him. You are the beloved daughter. You are the beloved son. And he loves you. This creates this temptation to where we want to operate with a sense of my will be done. And when we give into my will be done, it is if we turn and we worship Satan rather than the Father. Every time we do that, it just brings pain. 
we ask these questions. I know what God would say, but what would they think? I know what God would have me do, but honestly, I want to look cool or popular or be in front of them. I know what God would say, but surely he'd want me to be happy. Remember in the garden? What's the thing that really gets Eve? You could be like God. You and I, we have a total desire to be worshipped. Where, where do you find it? You being the world's perfect Christian mom? You being the perfect captain of industry, employer, and overseer in revenue? You being the one who says, I don't have to have either of those. I'm just going to be faithful. And you take on the total Christian identity of appearance. Where do you go to make sure you move to the front of the line? What is your version of I'll give you all you want? Hey, click this, it won't cost you. Hey, raise your voice here, it won't cost you. Hey, hey, sleep in. Don't, you don't have to overdo the getting to know God through his word. You don't have to come and be ready to combat the reality of temptation by memorizing it. No, no, that's too much. Don't worry about that. That's for radical Christians. Just be regular. That'll kill you. That destroys the American church. It will wreck the springs. It's not about you. It is not about me. What is this temptation? This is the temptation of self-exaltation. What is the truth? What's the truth? Because he's going to die for you. Because he's going to forgive you because he did all that through the cross, because the spirit of his son resides within you, when he looks at you, he says, son, he says, daughter, you are already enough. You are already enough. You don't need to prove it in your job. You don't need to prove it in your parenting. You don't need to prove it to your parents. <coughs> Stupid time to get a cough. <laughs> Satan. I don't, I don't know. I probably just had a cough. But we do that. We do that. I do that. One of the things that always stood out to me was a moment Jesus looks at Peter. We're not going to turn here. He looks at Peter as he's going to the cross. And he says to him, Satan has asked me that he might sift you like wheat. One of the ways Satan seeks to sift you and I by wheat is he makes it about us. It's not the path. Why? Because of what he's done, you are enough. Not because you've done anything amazing, but because he so loves you and he attributes his righteousness to you. That before the creator of the heavens and the earth, that you now, you don't see by straight sight, but you see by faith. He's the one that pronounces on you an identity. You live for him, not the colleagues, not the spouse, not the kids, not the past. It's for him. To recap, we looked at Matthew 4, 1 through 11 to talk about overcoming temptation, how these may show up in new ways, but they are ancient paths of brokenness. We had to understand where they start, self-gratification, self-protection, self-exaltation. Self-gratification, we looked at, these are questions, and it may be different. You are likely not tempted to turn stones to bread, but you are tempted to ask the question, does he really love me? Will he really take care of me? Will he provide? Will he give me what I want, the temptation, self-gratification, the truth? Guys, he really does love you. That love, it's going to be more than whatever spouse you can find, girl you can date, kids you can raise, retirement home you can get. It's all going to fall short. Self-protection, the next one, it's asking these questions. Can I really trust him? Is his way really better? Is he really with me? Really, really help me? The temptation, self-protection, the truth. You can trust God. Third, self-exaltation. It's asking these questions. I know what God might say, but what do others think? I know what God might feel, but I love when I'm celebrated, patted on the back, and that's not all wrong. But when your and my heart turns to, hey, hey, worship me. God would only want me to be happy. He wouldn't want to restrict my freedom. 
Temptation is self-exaltation, the truth. You don't need more. You don't need more of you. You are enough. You need more of him. Guys, there's this beautiful thought, and we'll close with this, and then I'm going to bring up a friend of mine, and we're going to actually take communion today, which is going to be part of a, a weekly rhythm for us here at the Springs. <laughs> Here's the thing. That story about Peter, where Jesus turns, and he looks at Peter, and he says, Satan has asked me that he might sift you like wheat. You know what Jesus says? After that, he says to him, hey, after you have fallen, Jesus knows Peter will give way. He looks at Peter and he says, hey, you strengthen your brothers. The core truth of overcoming temptation is this. Even when you and I do not overcome, he overcame. So here's the reality. In your life, you and I, we are led into the wilderness and we lose. We choose the sin. We go the wrong way. He was led into the wilderness and he won the battle. He won the fight. His perfection gets attributed to you and to me. But me and my brokenness, I will go back like a dog to vomit and so will you. But I give him. Like his faithfulness is mine. His righteousness is mine. Even after when I fall, he says, hey, John, I'll use it. You repent, you turn, you run. Let's use it. Strengthen yourself. You know what he had to do to accomplish that? He had to break his body. He had to shed his blood. He had to die on a cross for you and for me. I'm going to pray when as I do that, I want us to have a heart of the reality of even when we don't overcome, and I hope you heard us talk about how you overcome, how you sever at the root, but even when we don't overcome, he overcame. That is your great assurance. That is your great hope. You don't overcome sin to earn more of that, but because he's done that, that's how we live. He loves you. You can trust him. Because of him, you are enough. I'm gonna pray we're going to sing a short section of one final song. I'll lead us in communion. We'll get out of here. Father, I thank you for your truth and for your word, what it does in our hearts and in our lives. God, I ask that you would come and help us overcome temptation, whatever that might be in our different situations or stories or lives or backgrounds. But Lord, I'm also asking that you would help us to recognize the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak that when we give way, you overcame, that you broke your body and you shed your blood that you might grant us the assurance, I love you, you can trust me, in me, you are enough. So fathers, we come now and we sing this last song as we just reflect on the reality of your cross and how you endured in victory where we fail because you set your eyes toward Jerusalem to a cross where you'd be torn from the Father in the forgiveness of our sins, and all we must do is believe. That's it. May that be the direction of our lives, where you'd have us go. Father, help us to come and take this time to reflect and to meditate on that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
we owe everything to him. The Lord's table or communion is a recognition of what he did on our behalf. He broke his body, he shed his blood. If you're here and you believe in Jesus, this is an invitation to you. One of the things that's true though, that even as he describes what it looks like to come to the Lord's table, to partake of communion, broken body, shed blood, is it says if you come without self-examination, you do so and you eat and you drink judgment to yourself. If there's areas of your life where right now you as a follower of Christ, you are not overcoming temptation, not that you have to be perfect, but you know there's hidden darkness in the soul that God wants freedom from. Do not worship through the elements. Go and worship. Go be reconciled. Go and repent. If you're confused on how, come and talk to us. But church, even when we don't overcome, he overcame the body of Christ broken for you. If you're at home, all we do is we invite you, go to the pantry, find bread, find juice, find anything. There's nothing magical in these elements. It doesn't have to be wine. It doesn't have to be unleavened. And lead your family. Those who believe, lead those there in the living room. Pull the car over, please, if you're there. And if you got a snack, grab it. And do this with us. The next thing that happened on the night of the Lord's Supper was there was a cup that was passed. This cup was a representation of the new covenant, demonstrating the blood that would be shed. The blood of Christ shed for you. serve a God that endured temptation and walked perfectly. Why? So that even when we don't overcome, we always know he overcame. Thank you guys for joining us online. Thank you all for joining us in person. If you're in person, we're going to dismiss by sections on our way out of here. But for everyone online as well as here, y'all have a great week of worship. We'll see you next Sunday.